we look into the mysteries of our universe, the more apparent it becomes how little we understand it. And the same can be said for this small, frail, blue marble that we live on. From undiscovered species, unexplored depths of both water and land, lost civilizations, to interstellar objects, the potential for life beyond Earth and the ability to peer into other worlds far beyond our own solar system, and the first observed black hole, which had only been hypothesized at the time. The things we call science fiction often have their roots in truth. And it begs the question, are the things we call paranormal simply unproven science fact? Welcome to XV Planets. Greetings, friends, fiends, and lovers of strange and wondrous things. Welcome back to XV Planets, and welcome to the finale of Season 1. Transmitting from the Black Lodge, as always, I am your host, Flood. It's good to be here with you all yet again. Now, this is going to be a long one, and we've got a lot to get through tonight. But first, how y'all doing? I hope you all are well, staying warm, and staying safe out there as we creep into the second month of the new year. Drop me a line on Twitter at XVPlanis and tell me something good or something strange, perhaps. Tell me how you're doing. Also, on a funny note, I hope you all were entertained by my getting audibly schnockered on last week's episode with Ralph. It was a good time. So here we are. The end of the road that led us to Linville Gorge and, in turn, to the fabled Brown Mountain Lights. It's been a fascinating journey, and I thank you all for joining me on it. The investigative team for this venture, comprising of myself, Megan, and Ralph, both of whom you have met on previous installments of this series, as well as our friends Shane and Alan, witnessed something truly astonishing, and it's been my pleasure to share these accounts and different points of view with you. Tonight, we're going to scale it back down from the skies and back to the ground for a final conversation about the phenomenon with special guest Micah Hanks of the Micah Hanks Program to discuss more of the history and science surrounding some of the many attempts to make sense of it all and also to get to know Micah a little bit better. We'll get into that conversation a little bit later in the show. But before we go barreling back into it, there are a few things I want to talk about briefly. First, you're going to have to bear with me because I'm about to go full science geek for a moment or two. Truly fascinating things are happening in the world of space exploration, and I'd like to share a few of them with you briefly in case some of you missed these wonders that have been popping up. The James Webb Telescope, launched on December 25th, 2021, has reached its final destination, nearly a million miles away from Earth and even beyond our own moon. There it unfurled its tennis court-sized sunshield and unfolded a massive gold mirror that will allow it to study the universe in new ways and peer inside the atmosphere of exoplanets. This is incredibly exciting for me, as it will allow us to view and study the universe in new ways, reaching further into the vastness of space with greater clarity. In similar news, a proposed research visit to Amuamua, called Project Lyra, has been presented by the Initiative for Interstellar Studies. Now, Muamua, if you'll remember, is the first known interstellar object detected passing through our solar system. While that alone is quite significant in itself, what makes it more amazing is that it could possibly have been extraterrestrial in origin. Now, while the majority of the scientific community tends to balk at the idea, Harvard professor Avi Loeb, an author of the book Extraterrestrial, argues, with compelling evidence that I might add, that due to its atypical movement and the fact that it decelerated as it approached our sun for a flyby and then accelerated after it passed, 
would be indicative of intelligent control. I highly suggest you read the book if this sounds as fascinating to you as it does to me. It certainly presents some exciting possibilities. Now, Project Lyra, if given the green light, will launch sometime in the year 2028 and could take over 22 years to reach due to the incredible rate of speed it is moving and how far away it has gotten from our solar system already. So, if I'm lucky enough to live that long, we hopefully will find out if Dr. Loeb is correct when I'm... Well, I don't know, 68. Yikes. Hmm. And the last little bit of science nerd news I wanted to share with you is the upcoming Europa Clipper mission from NASA. Coming directly from the NASA website, NASA's Europa Clipper will conduct detailed reconnaissance of Jupiter's moon Europa and investigate whether the icy moon could have conditions suitable for life. It has a launch date estimate of 2024. Now, this is significant for me personally, because if you've been listening to me long enough, and especially if you've heard some of the content and guest spots that I've done outside of the main podcast here, then you've heard me give my Europa speech. And I won't descend into that madness right now, because it will take too long and we have far greater things to deal with tonight. But the long and short of it is this. There is a very high probability that we may not have to look beyond even our own planetary system for proof of life beyond Earth. The composition and scientific data collected on Europa makes it likely that underneath its icy surface there is a vast ocean that could potentially host life. Even if it's microscopic in nature, that would be proof of the existence of life beyond our world, and that, my friends, is a game-changer. I believe that because of this, as well as several other elements I'll rant about at some other time, we will see this happen in our lifetime, and potentially soon. Now, the other thing that I wanted to take a little time to talk about before we wrap up the Brown Mountain phenomenon is community. My dear friends and fans and listeners of all strangeness, fellow adventurers and investigators, supporters and investors, I am humbled and grateful for all the people that this project has introduced into my life and for all of the support you give. It has been a wild ride this first year, and I thank you all from the bottom of my heart. From fellow paranormal investigators to new members of the research and field teams, from conversations with authors and filmmakers to fans old and new, this has grown faster than I imagined, and honestly, I thought it would take years to build up what has exploded in the last five months. And that's why I want to talk about some of my fellow podcasters and collaborators. The first year of this project put me in orbit of some amazing creators, and some great collaborations have developed through those. And I've come to realize that we have to lift each other up. Most of us are not big budget podcasters. We're not doing this full time. I would like to. But we have no budgets for advertising. Most of us have day jobs. And most of us only grow our audiences by word of mouth. So real quick, I want to give a shout out to some of my favorites that I listen to or have had the honor of collaborating with over the last year. I'll have the links for all of these in the show notes in case you're interested. First up, I have to give a shout-out to my friend Trishmo, host of The Missing Piece and co-host of Chasing Prophecy, both of which come from United Public Radio Network and Broadcasting in New Orleans at 105.3 at 8 p.m. on Mondays and Tuesday, respectively. You'll be hearing from Trish soon here on XV Planets in the upcoming month, and you can check out my conversation with the Chasing Prophecy team if you click on the link in the show notes. Definitely got to give a shout-out to Luxacult and the Green Mushroom Project, I'm sure you all remember Luxa from her interview earlier on in this season, and if you're not, you should go back and give it a listen. I was also a guest of Smuts Up, her sex comedy podcast, and we have a few other things coming down the pipeline later this year. 
Next to Lux Occult, Occult Confessions has been my other go-to for occult subjects. Dr. Rob Thompson and his group of alchemic actors do heavy research historical deep dives into all things occult, and through his delivery I feel like I'm getting a master's degree while being entertained. Also, I recently discovered a new show called Hey Strangeness. Hosts Aaron and Sarah do entertaining and pretty insightful deep dives into cryptids. Now, what I love about this show the most is that they tackle, they tackle some really, really obscure ones. I mean, ones that I've never even heard of. It's a lot of fun. Go check it out. My friends Brian Barnes and Kate Bagby have a new series debuting February 2nd called Climate Collab, where they take an in-depth look at the climate crisis and how we can slow it down. If you want the real story about the state of our beautiful blue marble and the danger that it's in, this is where you need to go. XV Planets extended member Janelle Deetham, who you remember from the Possession Teaser episode we did earlier this year, has just fired up her podcast, The Boozy Art Historian. Grab yourself a cocktail. Go learn about art, my friends. You will not be disappointed. It's a lot of fun. Now, these last three are for those of you who, like me, are mildly or extremely obsessed with odd anomalies in our skies. Be sure to check out Somewhere in the Skies with Ryan Sprague and Our Strange Skies with Rob Christofferson. Both of them offer different approaches to the UFO phenomenon and offer stories and history that tend to slip through the cracks with others. And i got to tell you, Rob Christofferson in particular, uh, if you want to hear about some of the, the really craziest, wackiest uh, UFO stories that you'll ever hear, definitely go check that out. This world is weird, man. And finally, that brings us to the last, and that would be our guest for this evening. Now, Micah Hanks is an author, researcher, adventurer, and host of the Micah Hanks program, which you have all heard me reference several times over the last year as well as his other podcasts, Middle Theory, Seven Ages Audio Journal, and Sasquatch Tracks, as well as being the creator and co-founder of The Debrief, which you should definitely check that out. From all these sources, Micah takes an intelligent, critical look at history, science, astronomy, technology, futurism, and uses that same critical, scientific, and historical-based approach to look at the some more mysterious sides of our world, namely Sasquatch and ufology. And I can't stress this enough. If you want a no-nonsense approach to the unexplained, this guy is for you. I came across Micah's episode on the Brown Mountain Lights about a month before we left for the expedition. After I returned, and I had time to process what I personally experienced, I reached out to Micah to see if he would be open to joining me for the wrap-up on this North Carolinian anomaly, since he is one himself. And much to my delight, he agreed. So, without further ado, please welcome Micah Hanks. Micah? Micah, are you there? Oh. Oh, damn. I'm I'm sorry, friends, I forgot. There is only one way to summon Micah Hanks. Let me see if I can get this right. First, I gotta light a candle here. Alright, that's good. Then we need a little metal music. Okay, that'll do. From the high mountains of Appalachia in a bunker below ground, please welcome Micah Hanks. So, Micah, I want to thank you so much for coming on to the show. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time out to come and join us here on XV Planets. Uh, huge honor to have you here. You've been a huge influence on me. 
and definitely one of my go-tos as far as um, finding out about all of the strange things in the skies. Well, indeed. Uh, in the skies and elsewhere, no doubt. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. So at this point, I think I've referenced you on my own show probably four or five times. Uh, so most of my listeners should be very familiar with you. But for those who are not, could you give us just a, a little... Yeah, certainly. Well, you know, I'm I'm sure that as we get into the discussion about Brown Mountain today, mm -hmm. I'll I'll tell you a little more about, you know, some of my early trips down there, but that had been one of my early interests as a kid growing up. My parents gave me books on all kinds of interesting things. They were always trying to encourage interest in science and art primarily. We would go on long uh, walks up uh, in the Pisgah National Forest and by the time I was about 10, I knew the names of all the different wildflowers. Uh but Every now and then on the more speculative side of science, my uh, mom especially would tell stories around the campfire um, about UFOs. She was very interested in UFOs. My father, again, was a little more on the biological side of things, but he sort of shared these sorts of interests too, and he had books on Sasquatch. And I was probably about five or six years old when I first asked for some of those books. I said, you know, do you have books on this that I can read? I, I got really tired in kindergarten and first grade of Mike, Mary, and Jeff, you know, things like that. And I'm really thankful that they gave me those books at such an early age because it did a couple of things. First of all, it opened my mind to scientific possibilities that even some of my teachers were very, uh, very hesitant to allow. Uh, and, and we can talk about that more in a moment too. But uh, it was my first kind of, uh, encounter with establishment attitudes about things by the time I was in about third grade. And I might as well just mention it now that I brought it up. I mean, I had a teacher stood me up in front of the class and actually told me, you know, you're not getting an A on your report that you've written about UFOs because there's not enough hard evidence to support this. Well written, well produced though it was, you know, you didn't pick a topic that uh, academics would uh, recognize as, you know, decent or, or worthy of paying attention to. And this led to a parent-teacher conference, and she wanted to know, you know, why have you given him all, all these books on these sorts of things? And my mom and dad kind of responded by saying, well, he's reading, isn't he? And that's <laughs> where it all ended. And so I kept, I, uh, but, you know, she tried to, to sit me down and say, every other week when we go to the library, you need to, you need to get a nonfiction book that doesn't deal with this sort of stuff, Michael, and, and, and get a, a fiction book, get some literature. I want to see you reading things other than Sasquatch and UFOs. So you can tell, I mean, by the time I was in about second or third grade, I mean, my mind was very focused on this and it was a contagious problem too, because other children wanted to read these books too, as I piqued their interest in these sorts of things. So by the time I was, uh, you know, in third grade or so, the result of this, in my opinion, was that I was reading, uh, adult level, you know, or, or very least, you know, maybe you would say middle school or high school level reading material. And it actually began to advance me a little quicker than some of my classmates. So I think mom and dad, you know, made the right decision. And I would encourage other parents out there, if your kids have an interest within reason, if it's not something that's dangerous, you know, or something that might scare them, you know, always be active as a parent, keep an eye on what your kids are reading but encourage them to read. Mine did that. So by the time I was about 18 years old, I was like, now I want to go out into the world and I want to study this stuff. And one of the closest examples that I could find in my region living in Western North Carolina was Brown Mountain. And so uh, the Brown Mountain interest that I have, which we'll be discussing today, is actually kind of intimately related to how I got involved in all this, because it was one of the very first mysteries I actually went and personally explored. 
So it definitely hits home for you uh, in multiple ways because you have a, I mean, you have a lot of personal investment in that particular study, which, uh, you know, again, I'm going to reference the episode that you did on it back in January of last year, and I will be sure to add that into the show notes. And it's also what prompted me to reach out to you to see if you would be up for coming and having a chat about it. So that that pretty much answers my question. I was wondering, like, how did you get to this point? And you 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 gave me the backstory. The origin story yeah. of Micah Hanks. <laughs> <laughs> the origin story. I mean, that that's the uh, origin story in a nutshell, at least. But, you know, uh, what's fascinating is I think a lot of people are drawn to whatever is in their area, right? And I think this is one of the reasons why a lot of people who are essentially drawn to the unexplained, they kind of start with ghost hunting, right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, I know I did because... In my beautiful historic town of Asheville, North Carolina, there are a lot of stories of, of ghosts and things like that. And uh, another book that um, my parents also had had in their library, they had a wonderful library. It had a lot of literature, a lot of, you know, textbooks, you know, on everything from biology to, you know, math and all kinds of things. But there was also a couple of books by Nancy Roberts. Uh, and I think that the one in the one I'm remembering is probably Ghosts of the Old North State. And then later I acquired another one. Um, and she had entries that were about, you know, two or three pages long that discussed famous hauntings throughout the state of North Carolina. But in one of those books, there was also an entry on the Brown Mountain Lights. And something that struck me about it was that, A, in addition to being only maybe an hour and some change from where I am in Asheville, so it was actually closer than a lot of the stories that she was talking about, regionally speaking, mm-hmm. uh, there was also the, the fact that People will go into an old building and claim that they see a spirit or say that they've experienced, you know, cold, you know, chills or something, you know, a cold spot, or they may say that they have seen some sort of, you know, misty kind of an apparition, whatever. With Brown Mountain, it was immediately apparent to me, even at an early age. I mean, people go there and some of them see these balls of light, this luminous phenomena. Mm. I mean, almost like fire, almost like starlight, often brighter. These luminous orbs, for lack of a better term, seem to actually move around. Sometimes they lift off the top of the mountain, go up into the air, and these things are sometimes seen for hours, and there are photographs of them. In fact, Nancy's husband, Bruce, also had managed to photograph some of these these phenomena, these lights right there along the Brown Mountain Ridge line uh, in a photograph that he published in one of her books back in the 1960s. And I remember looking at that photo and thinking, you know, okay, unlike a lot of alleged hauntings and and paranormal phenomena. I mean, this seems like something that's very physical and tangible. People can go to this place. Sometimes they see these things. They've even photographed them. Mm -hmm. I want to go do the same thing. Uh, Lo and behold, years later, I also came across, as we were um, going through the belongings of my late grandfather, William, he had kept all kinds of archival newspapers and and all kinds of other periodicals and books and things. He was really fascinated with World War II, uh, big you know, events in history like the Kennedy assassination and things like this. He'd mm-hmm. also kept documentation about those. But I'm going through some of his old newspapers, and sure enough, he had kept a front page story that had been published here in the Asheville Citizen Times about the Brown Mountain Lights. And um, there, again, was a photograph that seemed to show the lights uh, as they appeared you know, to the reporter who had covered this for the Citizen Times, our newspaper here. And I thought, man, yeah, I want to go there because this is something people seem to actually experience. It seems to be something physical. And that um, I I certainly differentiated from the kind of -of run-of-the-mill paranormal claims. And in fact, uh, by the time I was about 18 or 19 years old, uh, I had begun to join. uh, He lived here in Asheville at the time, but Joshua P. Warren, who was another paranormal enthusiast and researcher, he now, I believe, lives out in Las Vegas. 
I still keep in touch with Josh, but back in those days, he was very focused on the Brown Mountain thing. And so I reached out to him and I said, you know, I'd like to come down with you guys and uh, spend some time down there on the mountain. And we did. We we often camped down there in the middle of perilous weather, snowstorms, rainstorms, <laughs> floods, <laughs> fires, all kinds of other things, you know. Uh, but Complete and was, total disregard was, uh, for personal safety. <laughs> Well, yeah, there were certainly some scary instances. You know, we were up there setting up tents one day and this torrential, one of the worst, you know, thunderstorms I've ever seen breaks out. And I ran inside one of the tents and they said, what are you doing? We're putting the tents up. And I said, oh, okay, you're going to give me a hard time. Sure. So I go back out there, you know, I'm like 18, 19 years old, you know, got to prove myself. And so there's lightning <laughs> striking and we're putting metal rods in the ground. Brilliant idea, right? Oh, of course. <laughs> so, kids don't try this at home. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, those early experiences were great because you know, it put me in the field. And, and here again, what that introduced me to was the citizen science idea of this is a subject that, I mean, a lot of people, a lot of people in academia, they look at it and they go, come on, there's no such thing as UFOs or ghost lights. And I'm like, well, okay, but there are such things as ball lightning. Mm -hmm. There are such things as, you know, luminous phenomena in nature, uh, like Fox fire, or maybe like, uh, you know, swamp gas, famously. Yeah. Yeah, St. Elmo's. I mean, so so what it really did for me was it got me interested in, well, what other kinds of luminous phenomena occur in nature? And could some of these things, even though J. Allen Hynek later was, actually it was much before my time, but I later learned that J. Allen Hynek was infamously associated with, you know, comparing some UFO sightings over Michigan to swamp gas. But I mean, it very well may be the case that some UFO sightings actually are natural luminous phenomena. So I think it's very important to understand what's going on at Brown Mountain. And between you and me, John, I don't think we have really unraveled that. I think it's still very much a mystery, but I do also maintain that it exists, whatever it is. And yes. it is something that is physical, something that is natural, probably, uh, and something that science has yet to resolve. I think you're, I agree with you a hundred percent on that. Like after witnessing them myself, I, um, I, I wouldn't necessarily, uh, pin it down as, as, paranormal but honestly like that you use the word paranormal it's just normal for me now so you know <laughs> but there there yeah. definitely is something going on there and what's fascinating to me is like what we're well over a hundred years of this being documented through print and through um you know historical articles and we still don't have an answer and i i picked this up from you on your episode about it the usgs has been out there two times right yeah, there was, uh, I think, in the early teens, maybe, but then, of course, the, the definitive study was carried out, I think, around 1922 when George R. Mansfeld. Mansfeld, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he goes and he does the investigation. And again, if you go back and you read the actual USGS circular publication on the Brown Mountain Lights that Mansfield uh, published, it was a very scientific investigation. And I think it stands today as one of the most thorough scientific investigations of the lights, which is kind of sad because I mean, more than a, well, yeah, yeah, I guess actually as of this year, right, we're, we're coming up on, uh, we're, we're now a century later, right? So yep. a century later, it's not to say that there hasn't been science done. You know, Dr. Daniel Caton from Appalachian State University is a uh, right. scientist who has certainly looked at this phenomena for a long time. Now he's much more on the skeptical side of things. Uh, and I think that a lot of proponents of the Brown Mountain phenomenon uh, have been a bit antagonistic toward him because of that, you know. But in truth, Daniel Caton also believes now that there is some kind of luminous phenomena that occurs, and partly because 
Uh, after he had, uh, I remember him saying during a, a lecture I saw him give a few years ago there in Limville Falls, he'd said, you know, I kind of went from skepticism and then to cynicism and then maybe back to skepticism. For years, he was going up there and like myself and a lot of people, he wasn't seeing anything. He never saw anything up there. And then he set up a grouping of um, cameras, web cameras at various residences overlooking Brown Mountain. And they started trying to film things. And after a long time, they were like, well, we don't have anything. And then one night, a few years ago, mm -hmm. this strange flash of light does appear on one of their cameras. And Dan was pretty excited about that, understandably. And he says, well, okay, now I have to say I've gone maybe from skepticism to cynicism back to skepticism. And now toward open-minded skepticism, you know, I'm not going to make any conclusions about this, but there's something there, um, which is funny because I've spoken to other skeptics who are like, well, Dan's, you know, he's, he's a turncoat. He's... He's gone and he's batting for the other team now. And I'm like, well, no, he's not. He's a scientist who is looking for evidence. And he remained skeptical until he came across the evidence that was at very least um, potentially supportive of the idea, the notion that there was a phenomena worthy of study. And now that he's obtained some of that evidence and to his satisfaction believes that there's something worthy of study, now he is a little more open to uh, doing just that, trying to get to the bottom of what it might be and collect more data about it. Now, that's a very scientific way to go about it. And I really respect that. I appreciate that about Dan. Uh, so back to the point about Mansfield, it's sad that we haven't had more scientists in 100 years who've gone up there and who have really tried to analyze this and to scientifically, you know, look at the problem and get to the bottom of it. Now, Mansfield's conclusion was distant headlights of locomotives could account for all the sightings of the Brown Mountain lights. Right. I would maintain that that's probably impossible given the fact that I've seen what I believe are very good photographic depictions. Uh, and in fact, I believe Dr. Caton's footage that they uh, obtained with their web cameras also depicts a luminous phenomena that is not um, only a phenomena that appears at ground level. It actually appears to move through the sky above the ridgeline, as some of the early photographs by Bruce um, Roberts and others also seem to indicate. In other words, I find it hard to believe that locomotive headlights can rise up into the sky somehow or that it's atmospheric refraction. I mean, we get into the, the realm of having to come up with some rather, I would say, extraordinary claims to try and account for physics um, that would allow lights to appear above the ridgeline when, in fact, they originate from the ground. Maybe it's not impossible, but, I mean, if we go with Occam's razor, the simplest and most likely explanation to me is simply that there's a, an airborne luminous phenomena yeah. that occurs, and that seems to have been represented in numerous photos and videos now. Yeah, and, and the Brown Mountain Lights in particular, this seems to be one of those uh, cases that the personal accounts that you hear from people who have been out there to experience it themselves are completely different from anybody who's gone up there to obtain scientific data. And it yet again, it's kind of one of those things like it might be playing off the people who are actually observing it. Um, I do think that there is something to that. But I, you know, I got to tell you, after my experience and in, in witnessing them firsthand, like my brain's going a million miles a minute thinking about the scientific aspect of this. Like when I go back out there again, I don't want to go with just my ragtag team of paranormal investigators. I want to I want to bring some geologists some scientists, like three different parties in three different ridges and all triangulating their information together. There's something fascinating going on out there. And I've never experienced anything like it. And I've never seen anything like it, but I really, really want to know what it is. Oh, I do too. And, you know, again, what you're describing is, is exactly what I've done in the past. Uh, you know, even going back to the early days when I would join uh, Joshua Warren and uh, his group, uh, they would often be accompanied by 
you know, professional scientists in various different fields, physicists, you know, uh, employees who had previously worked at Oak Ridge National Laboratory, geologists, all kinds of things. And as I've independently uh, studied the phenomena for a number of years, I mean, gosh, now, if, if you've... <laughs> going on two decades, really. I mean, it's been quite a while, actually, maybe more than two decades. So, but yeah, I've taken a lot of geologists up there with me. And again, their ideological interest in this, uh, you know, kind of falls in a, in a variety of different places across the spectrum of belief mm -hmm. and skepticism. Some are so, again, with, with great respect to all who have joined me, uh, you know, one geologist, for instance, who wrote a fine book about the Brown Mountain Lights, had concluded uh, to his satisfaction that the lights appeared to be um, blue ghost fireflies. Are you familiar with blue ghost fireflies by chance? No, this is something new to me, actually. Yeah, this is a, uh, there aren't, they aren't fireflies, actually. Uh, they are a variety of beetle, and they certainly are found here in Western North Carolina. Uh, and in fact, to my understanding, I believe that they're probably far more widespread than people realize, but they are a very unique kind of beetle that uh, in the spring, in moist environments in, in moist, you know, kind of wooded areas. Uh, the way that, I'm sorry. Uh, I, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I, I didn't mean to cut you off. Go. No, that's okay. Yeah. They, they, when they procreate in the springtime, uh, the, I, I guess it's the males rise about, you know, six inches to a foot off of the forest sir, uh, uh, floor and they kind of hover around and they produce a very, I guess you might say a very faint kind of indigo white light, which when they're photographed, interestingly, the color uh, appears to be a little different. Uh, I've seen a lot of different photographs of them. And if it's a, you know, a digital SLR camera, um, and I'm sure, you know, a photographic expert could, you know, explain the light properties that cause the appearance of the coloration of the light to be different um, with a digital SLR. But the point is the blue ghost fireflies, when they reproduce for about a week, you know, their mating season, it's a very narrow window, but, but when they appear, they're all throughout the area where they appear. And generally, um, in Western North Carolina, they're best known, uh, for appearing around the DuPont state, uh, forest. And then they're also, I think, known to, to appear in abundance down in parts of the Everglades. And apart from that, there aren't a whole lot of well-known hotspots, uh, where the blue ghost fireflies appear. And again, like I mentioned, they are called fireflies, but they're really actually not the same uh, insect is the so-called, you know, lightning bug or firefly that we all recognize right in the summertime around here. Now, the reason I bring that up is because the blue ghost fireflies uh, are unique, I guess, to this region to an extent. And therefore, uh, my geologist friend had said, you know, he was pretty convinced that people who were seeing the brown mountain lights in the springtime were seeing these fireflies. Now, the problem with that is that, first of all, I don't doubt that there may be pockets in the area of the Limville Gorge where blue ghost fireflies uh, are seen. Uh, I have never seen them there, but they are very specific. They are very um, short in duration in their annual appearances. The brown mountain lights are seen, to my understanding, all throughout the year. Uh, there maybe are some statistical peaks in, in, fall. in the fall. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The fall. I think a lot of that has to do with the temperature change, and we can get into the possible theories or mechanism as to what may cause the lights to appear. Which I, I would that, like to do, but yeah, yeah. I think that temperature has something to do with that. And uh, so in, 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 in moving toward that, let me just say that to my satisfaction, the blue ghost fireflies are not a good explanation for the variety and the temporal, you know, periodicity of sightings that have occurred there at Brown Mountain. I, and, and the problem I have with that is that, again, again, there are a lot of people who have um, wonderful insights into things that happen in nature, but 
but we're all skeptics included prone toward pet theories. And the first thing I think, if you're going to have, if you want to, you know, self-check, and this is a tenet of science, you know, the, the check for falsification, you know, if you want to self-check your theory, you need to look at the theory and ask yourself, does what is being described uh, versus what I think it might be? I mean, is there a good match? Um, are there data points that fall outside the narrow confines of my theory? And again, the blue ghost firefly thing is just a, a very, a very limited mechanism for potential explanations of the Brown Mountain Lights. Now, another theory, though, and this is one that I favor personally, is uh, geologically speaking, something along the lines of earthquake lights. And this is why I think we might see more of these lights around the spring and the fall. Uh, in the spring and the fall, you know, you're going to have warmer days, but you're going to have colder nights, you know, whereas in the summertime, I mean, you're going to have really hot days and it's still going to be, be pretty warm even at night, you know, when it's, you know, completely dark out and it's mm -hmm. you know 3 a.m. You can walk around, you know, in a T-shirt or whatever and, and do so comfortably. Same in the winter. In the wintertime, you know, it's, if it's really cold, you know, December or January, cold in the days, still going to be colder at night. But I mean, generally, it's going to be cold all day. The interesting thing about spring and summer is that when you've got those warm temperatures in the daytime and perhaps a greater disparity between those warm temperatures and the potential for cold at night, like right mm -hmm. now here in Western North Carolina, it could be like 50 or 60 degrees outside in the daytime and maybe drop down into the teens at night. So what you have is you have the potential for a lot of expanding and contracting and co coincidence with the heat and the cold of the daytime and the nighttime temperature extremes. And Which can in cause theory, a lot of anomalies, yeah. Well, yeah, because again, if you go to Brown Mountain and you go to the adjacent Linville Gorge, one thing that any geologist or any rock enthusiast who's been there will recognize is that you've got a lot of quartz and you've also got a lot of granitic rock and a lot of other kinds of rocks too. But quartz is unique in, in the sense that quartz is, uh, uh, well, they pronounce it differently in England. So I'm going to use their pronunciation, piezoelectric. Actually, I think that's how we say it here. I think they say piezoelectric. We say piezoelectric. <laughs> but anyway, so pie piezoelectricity uh, is essentially when, when, with relation to quartz, at least, when you put it under pressure, it releases electrons. And it can actually release a mild electrical potential. Uh, interestingly, you could take two pieces of quartz, and you could go into a dark room and rub them together and you'll actually see them light up. You'll see light being produced. Mm -hmm. That's the piezoelectricity. Um, and so one theory, and this is merely a theory, but it's an interesting one that might propose how the lights actually appear has to do with the idea that when you have that heating and that cooling, the mountain is put under great stress at night. And after being warmed all day and expanding as it contracts and it pressurizes quartz in the mountain, it could actually be releasing this electrical potential, which might be capable of building up and then discharging uh, with enough energetic potential that it could produce these self-luminous plasmas. But again, that's all just a theory, John. We have no idea exactly how that might happen. But this is something that, again, Joshua Warren had advocated this idea years and years ago. And from looking at uh, other literature regarding luminous phenomena in nature, especially in the collected works of guys like William R. Corliss, there have been a lot of Earthlight researchers like John Durer, Robert Theriault, uh, and a number of others over the years, they have all essentially kind of come to a similar conclusion here that geologically speaking, this makes sense, but we don't exactly know how it happens or what could you know give rise to a self-luminous orb of light that can just float around yeah. and can maintain its shape. But now the last point I'll make is, and this is what's really interesting, this phenomenon doesn't just happen at Brown Mountain. As you know, it happens at a variety of locations throughout the world, Hestel in Norway, uh, they've been seen throughout parts of the Ohio River Valley. There have been studies. 
the Marfa lights. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and, and other instances exist too. Paulding, I think. Um, but the point is, is that a lot of researchers who have studied this say that at times the lights appear to interact with them. And if they shine lights in their direction, that the lights will move or will seemingly react or interact with uh, the lights that are shown in their direction. And that really gets into the realm of there being something a little more complex than just ball lightning that forms as a result of you know the piezoelectricity uh, and, and the quartz in the mountain. So again, if the accounts are true, and I have to say, you've had that experience. Uh, I've talked to you and I've talked to a lot of other people over the years who have shared those kinds of experiences. It strongly suggests that there is something else going on here. I don't want to say that it's something ghostly. I'm not trying to say that it's something otherworldly, but that there may be something a little more complex than the simple Earthlight explanation. So again, all that to say, we have a possible model that might help us understand what could be happening, but we're far from understanding its full nature, what its implications may be, or even how all that happens. Agreed. And I, you know, I got to tell you, like regarding my own experience, had those uh, lights stayed still stationary or even moved only ever so slightly um, in one direction or the other, I totally would have chalked it up to some sort of, you know, geographical or gaseous uh, anomaly that was happening because there's all sorts of stuff happening down in that little ravine. But the fact that that it actually reacted to us and followed our patterns and it moved intelligently. And the things that we were even getting off of the spirit box, there's a whole lot of layers going on there. And yeah, nobody's figured it out yet, but I think I share your, your sentiment. And then why are we not studying this more? Like it's right there. It's there often just get out there and see it. But it seems like every time that they send somebody out to do a grander survey or do some, you know, deeper field research, they just never show up. And it's well, yeah, the strangest I, thing. I've experienced that too. And I mean, it really causes you to wonder sometimes. I mean, I guess the classical example of this phenomena versus the observer relationship, you know, has to do with the double slit experiment and how light mysteriously can behave like both a particle and a wave, but its behavior mm -hmm. may change uh, based on you know how it's being observed. And you know this is strange as it sounds, a you know understood property of quantum physics, which doesn't necessarily have corollaries in you know the Newtonian world that we all experience in our everyday right. reality. But I mean, it does make you think that uh, some people may experience reality a little different from others, that there isn't necessarily always a consensus experience. I remember Carl Jung, for instance, you know, talking about how he would go to seances because he was obviously interested in, in a wide array of phenomena. Hmm. And uh, in, on one occasion, in fact, he wrote about this in his book on flying saucers, where he bills himself as a skeptic and he tries to correct some of the misquoting that uh, occurred in the popular press back in the 1950s where they had tried to make Carl Jung out to be a flying saucer believer. Now, he said, I'm not a believer. In fact, you know, I'm as a physician, I must be more skeptical. But of course, he also corresponded with Donald Kehoe. I think he corresponded with Edward Ruppelt before his death. And he also acknowledged that there are some instances where there appear to be in coincidence with the observation, something seen on radar. And so Jung also seemed to be open to the possibility that there was something going on. But as right. a, you know, as a psychologist, he's, you know, he's psychoanalytically looking at this and trying to say, okay, 
what does it mean to the human when they see it? That that was his interest in the in the UFO phenomenon. But all that said, in another instance, and in the in the book that he wrote about that subject, he describes going to a seance and there being a group of individuals there who see a luminous ball hovering in front of the stomach of I think one of the mediums. Mm-hmm. This has nothing to do with the Brown Mountain Lights or their mechanism, by the way. This just happens to be something he was describing. The point was Jung couldn't see it. And he said everybody else in the room could clearly see, and they pointed it out to him, you know. Carl, there's a there's a light right there in front of that person's stomach. He couldn't see it. They all could. Rather than saying this was a you know shared hallucinatory experience or that this was some sort of a mutually experienced mind aberration mm-hmm. and that I, the scientist, didn't see it and therefore it didn't exist. No, what Jung said, I think is possible is that, you know, maybe some people share experiences that others don't. Maybe some people perceive aspects of reality differently from the way that some people perceive it. And if that's true, that might explain why I've had so few experiences going to Brown Mountain and seeing things myself. I know many people like yourself have gone and seen incredible things there. I know a lot of scientists who are like, there's nothing to this because when they go, like Carl Jung, they don't see it. And therefore, they conclude based on their own limited personal experience that there's nothing to see. Right. Now, the interesting thing that differentiates this from Carl Jung going to a seance and seeing a, or not seeing a globe of light hovering in front of a person's <laughs> abdomen is uh, the fact that there are what I believe to be very good photographs of the Brown Mountain Lights. Uh, my colleague, Bill Fox, has taken a number of those photos himself. I think uh, I've Charles shared Braswell's some of those. Yeah. 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 Charles Braswell is a, f- a photographer from down around uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, and he's taken some really good photos of what look like, for lack of a better term, fireballs that appear to be moving uh, through the air above Brown Mountain. And then, those are course, the ones that the have like that beautiful curve. That, yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sorry, and I what I think you're seeing is you're seeing a quickly moving object uh, as represented on a, um, I don't know what the exposure time would be of the photograph, but it's probably a, a long exposure, you know, mm-hmm. so that during the time period that the aperture of the camera is open, th- this represents the movement of the object, not not its actual shape just hovering there, right? Right, yeah. Uh, so, but then, of course, you also add to that the video footage aforementioned that Dr. Caton has collected. So I think it's very clear that there's an abundance of evidence at this point in support of there being some kind of a luminous phenomena there at Brown Mountain. I dare say, with all respect to my colleagues who believe it to be insects, that this is not blue ghost fireflies. There's something a little more complex going on here. But in terms of the nature of the human experience of when I go there, why haven't I seen it? Because it's true. I've only seen a couple of things ever, John, that I would say might have sort of been the Brown Mountain lights. David Weatherly and I were there, in fact, a couple of, yeah, we were there a couple of uh, years ago. And we saw these kind of little sort of sparkling things up along the trees. And David was like, look at that. And I said, yeah, I think I saw that too. I'm not sure what it was. And David looks over at me and it was just freezing cold that night. And he goes, Micah, dude. I'm done. Now, Hanks, listen. <laughs> yeah. He, well, he goes, he goes, now, if you go away from here and I hear you going on a podcast and saying you hadn't seen the Brown Mountain Lights, I'm going to kick you. <laughs> but I don't know if that's what that was. You know, I, I don't know what the light was that we saw. It didn't match the popular descriptions or the images I've seen in, in uh, you know, the photos that my colleagues have taken over the years. So again, I would hold out for the possibility that we may have seen a kind of electrical luminous phenomena. David certainly seems to have seen it, and so did I. And so it seems a little less likely it was just our eyes playing tricks on us, right? But but I think that there are much more vivid um, uh, appearances of it that have been photographed. Let me just say, put it that way. I mean, I think that the best representations of it are not what David and I saw. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, no. Fair enough. Like I said, I had 
what we witnessed had things moved slower or like just not moved at all, uh, I wouldn't have bat an eye. I would have been like, ah, it's campfire, whatever, or you know, it's you know some bizarre uh, anomaly going on down there. But uh, the fact that it was so bright, so fast, and went from one to seven back to one again. It's, uh, yeah, I don't know what that is, but I can tell you this much, buddy, you come down there with me. It's almost a guarantee because for some reason I just, I, I'm apparently a weird magnet anywhere I go. It just lights up. I just go back from the Sally house and I'm still trying to wrap my head around that one. <laughs> huh? Well, I will, I will certainly join you there because, um, Again, I, I, I like to go there. Any opportunity I have, I was literally down there uh, hiking around on the day after Christmas because we had unseasonably warm weather here. Didn't see any lights, but um, I know other people who, like yourself, um, tend to uh, have those kinds of experiences more frequently. And so my my plan, my strategy is I just hang around those people as often as possible and hope that eventually I'll see something, too. <laughs> <laughs> Come on over, buddy. I got you. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we're 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 definitely going to be planning uh, like a minimum of two trips this year, and and we're hoping to bring a little bit of a larger team and a more diverse team, and be able to look at it through uh, uh, multiple points of view, lenses, and beliefs and opinions. And I I really want to. There's just there's something fascinating going on there, and I'm I can't. I can't relate it to any other experience that I've, I've had. And I voluntarily catapult myself into weird, strange situations, potentially dangerous ones. I've never had an experience like that. That was, that was fascinating. And I do believe yeah. that whatever was going on out there, there, there was a little bit of a communication going on with the spirit box. Like if you listen to the audio session of that, there was some significant back and forth between me as the receiver and somebody else asking the questions into the void, it got, it got interesting. And after the conversation fizzled out, like towards the end of it, you hear me saying like snooty things like light, light. The receiver asks, we're looking for it. And then I respond with, do I need you to clap? (laughs) And then five minutes later, the light shows up. So (laughs) There is some weird stuff going on out there. And the second night yeah. was a completely different experience. We didn't see the lights, but we tried the same experiment. And what whatever was rolling through the hills that night was not as pleasant as the night before. Because the, the energy from that first hmm. night when we actually witnessed them, it was very playful, lighthearted. Um, it was engaging. Uh, something about that second night felt like a trap. <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, again, the aspects, uh, you know, of the of the the feeling that you associate with your separate nights still on the mountain. I mean, that's similar to things I've been told over the years by people who have experienced the phenomena. Uh, you know, a good friend of mine, Cindy Peters, who for many years ran the Parkview Lodge there in Linville Falls, which is right next to uh, Wiseman's View. Well, not right next to it, as you know from having been there. It's a long drive up that road to get to Wiseman's, but you know, generally speaking, let's say from the entrance. Uh, to the dirt road that takes you up there. Wiseman's mm-hmm. view is is close to uh, Linville Falls. And uh, Cindy would often take groups of people up there to watch the lights and had seen them many times herself. And she said one evening that a, a bright beach ball sized light um, appears uh, from maybe over off the top of Table Rock or Hawksbill 
and it actually travels across the uh, gorge in their direction and, and it comes up close and you know she says we're all kind of standing here looking at this light and it's very close to us and that they all just kind of suddenly had this this kind of feeling or compulsion even to all gather together and wave like they're posing for a picture and so she said we all did we you know she was with a group of people i think from charlotte north carolina they all put their arms around each other and stand there and they smile and wave you know pose for the light and then it just kind of drifts back over across the the gorge again and she says after that her next conscious memory was sitting on the steps crying and somebody was sitting there comforting her and she said she didn't remember at least a gap of several minutes after that now that's an interesting thing too because this seems to resemble missing time and many people describe having had this experience when they've observed uap or unidentified aerial phenomena ufos Uh, and so you know the certain commonalities between these experiences where some people feel afraid or there's apprehension or many people describe a playful or a trickster kind of an element associated with the appearance of the lights that's not specific only to brown mountain mm-hmm. you find that in a lot of instances um you find a lot of again i'm fascinated with the research project identification uh, is the name of the book by the way but the research outlined in this book by uh, professor harvey rutledge it was a book back in the 1970s i guess and uh maybe late 60s but it's i don't think it's in um print anymore and it's very hard to obtain i've actually held a copy and read it because um my uh a colleague of mine in the uk actually had a copy of it and i i went to his apartment there while i was in england and he says oh yeah check this out <laughs> and there it was um and i've read uh other writings based on it or by people who have read it so what rutledge outlines in this book is his long-term study of ufos it was employed over several years i mean grad students were involved um, most of the UAP, not all, but most of the UAP observed were light kind of phenomena, similar to what we see at Brown Mountain. Mm-hmm. And they said a lot of interesting things similar to your experience, John, where they could point lights at it and the, and the UAP, for lack of a better term, would appear to interact with or respond to the appearance of lights directed at it. And Rutledge also said that some of the participants in the study found that when they pointed a finger at one of these lights, that the, the object would sometimes move out of the way as though it were aware of a finger being pointed at it. Now, it's a very much more speculative book, but there is an interesting book, which I don't know if that's, it's actually been published yet, but I actually narrated this the audiobook of this, so I've read the entire thing, but it's a book by uh, Andrew Collins and Dr. Greg Little uh, called Origins of the Gods. And uh, although the title sounds like ancient astronauts stuff, I, and it gets a little into that, primarily what the book actually deals with is luminous phenomena uh, that has occurred you know, around the world throughout time since antiquity. And uh, Dr. Little, who I correspond with a, a good bit, he's a wonderful guy. Um, he actually talks pretty uh, at length about Harvey Rutledge's uh, studies. And, mm-hmm. and and again, the premise that a lot of UFOs are actually some kind of luminous plasma phenomena. But again, they also present the idea that it seems to be intelligent, as strange as that sounds. Uh Additionally, as strange as that sounds, that is a possibility that NASA has looked into also. The idea that lifelike structures could even emerge out in outer space from plasma. And that certain UAP, this isn't what NASA looked at, but the implication appears to be that certain UAP may actually be lifelike intelligent plasma. This sounds like nonsense, but I'm telling you, it's a very interesting 
um, there is a snowball. Right? <laughs> uh, there's a snowball effect going on regarding yeah. that particular subject, and and it seems to have gained traction, especially in the last five to six years. Is that yeah? There are probably the the more that we come to understand not only our own planet but actually the nature of reality itself, which is flimsy at best. Um, there's there's a whole lot more about the universe that we don't know than we do. And I think we oh, are, yeah. I, I mean, between government disclosure of UFOs, advancements in, in science and um, advancements specifically in the science of studying our own universe, our understanding for what life could be is expanding rapidly because we don't know Jack. Let's just... <laughs> <laughs> be honest about it. We know nothing about this universe. We know only what we know about this tiny little blue marble that we're on. And, and that is nothing compared to the vastness that it surrounds. You know, it's, there is something, yeah, there's a lot to be said for the whole concept of like the, the plasma beings and potentially it being intelligent. Um, and I think as we propel further in the next few years, we might get a little bit more information on that. It's certainly something that I am a little less skeptical about, I think. And maybe that's because of my experience on Brown Mountain and, and my interaction with the lights, because I don't want to say it was otherworldly, uh, but it wasn't normal. <laughs> I mean, whatever that is right. in this day and age, but... Well, what is normal? Exactly. And again, you know, it's interesting because uh, you look at the research that I was mentioning by uh, Andrew Collins and Dr. Greg Little, I found it very interesting. And again, I can sit down and I can read somebody's book and not agree at all with them. I, by the way, I, I don't disagree entirely with them. I'm just saying I could sit down and read a book that I don't agree with entirely and still maybe enjoy reading it or, or you know, I take myself out of my, you know, scientific skeptical, you know, thought process. I put on my speculative hat and I'll sit down and I'll read a book. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm okay with doing that. A lot of people are, you know, vehemently against anything that they disagree with or yeah. anything that they perceive as being something that's ideologically opposed to their position. I try not to be that way. But that said, as I'm reading, uh, you know, Collins and, and Little's book, I, you know, I, I could see how some people who are UFO proponents could see what they're saying about, you know, plasmas and things. And say, these guys are being way too skeptical. You know, they need to own up to the reality that Earth is being visited by extraterrestrials. You know, on the other side of things, uh, a geologist who is, you know, steeped in, you know, a sort of materialistic interpretation of nature might read that book and say, intelligent plasmas, nonsense. These are earthquake lights, you see. So it's, it's fascinating that an idea like that is very polarizing and people on different sides of the spectrum might view that both as being too skeptical or as being just too far out there. Yeah. Now, you know, part of their premise also is that, and there is some science that supports the idea that plasma manifestations may accompany um, very unusual uh, occurrences uh, in, in nature that might even extend beyond our reality as we know it. That's a very interesting thing. And again, you know, that's at the limits, I think, not only of my understanding of physics, but really of, I think, everybody's understanding of physics, apart from maybe mathematicians who are able to, with the use of equations, demonstrate that in likelihood there are other dimensions. I'm not one of those mathematicians or physicists, but I will say that, again, it's very interesting, some of the speculations that uh, Little and uh, Collins present in their book. But 
for my own part, to look at the Brown Mountain phenomena, uh, to me is it. I think it's very important to consider the fact that this is a phenomenon and it is fairly localized, but it is not unlike other manifestations of phenomena that are described as being very similar, which occur in other parts of the world. Yeah. And in various instances throughout the world and throughout time where those observations have been made and where studies have been conducted uh, of these phenomena, they tend to at times do like what you described, John, which is lights and things like this tend to cause these objects to behave, for lack of a better term, in a, in a unique way. And at they the very least react. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And again, it may be that that uh, how do I want to I want to be very careful in how I turn this. It may be that there's a phenomena that, like you said, reacts um, or responds, and I should be careful to distinguish that action from a controlled intelligent behavior. It may have the appearance of being controlled or intelligent behavior. For instance, some people describe that the brown mountain lights will follow them mm -hmm. if they're seen at close proximity. And then others say that when they have seen them close by, they'll try to move closer to get a better look, and as they move toward it, the light moves away from them. Now, some people interpret that as maybe being intelligent behavior, like the light's kind of like playing games. Um, electrically speaking, I mean, human, as you, you, of course, you know, you talk about using, um, I guess, tools and things, devices that are associated with paranormal investigation. So you've probably mm -hmm. used an electromagnetic field detector, right? Yes, absolutely. Well, so you know, of course, that certain kinds of detectors, have you used a tri-field natural EM meter? Uh, not that one in particular. No, I, yeah, I've been on investigations where somebody else was using one, but I don't own one myself. No. Yeah. So you're familiar with the device. And again, yeah. anybody at home who's listening, you can just look this up online. Uh, the Trifield natural EM meter is a multi-detector tool actually that, that will, is you, you can turn a switch and it's capable of detecting mul multiple different, uh, independent types of electromagnetic, uh, frequencies, which range from radio microwave to natural EM, um, you know, you can pick up the electromagnetic field produced by a living body like a human being. Now, my point right. is, with a device like that, we can clearly see that humans are bioelectric creatures and we produce a field. If the round mountain lights are an electrical phenomena, it stands to reason that as an electrical body like ourselves moves toward it, it might actually cause a repellent or perhaps also an attractive. An attraction, yeah. Yeah, so I think that really some of these appearances of intelligent behavior by the lights could possibly be explained through other means. And that's what I mean by the idea that some of the reactions or the observed phenomena may have the appearance of intelligence when in fact it may not be, but I don't know. I, in other instances, and again, we go back to Harvey Rutledge and the study that was done for project identification. Right. He was very much of the mind that it would be difficult to rule out the apparent, again, this would probably be how he would have termed it, the apparent knowledge or the apparent awareness of the lights in the way that they responded to what the researchers were doing and projecting at them. And to me, if, if indeed it is awareness, if it is indeed intelligence, it could be awareness without intelligence, right? It could be a very simple organism or a life form or whatever that isn't necessarily intelligent like we are, but it's reacting so to you like a squirrel would even. Right. Yeah. Now, yeah. We would, we would dare not call an amoeba intelligent, but an, an amoeba, amoeba is, a, a, you know, at least capable of certain degrees of awareness. And mm -hmm. again, you see where I'm going with this. So uh, the idea that it is something that displays awareness, that alone would be fascinating. Oh yeah. Yeah. 100%. I, I do think there are, there are so many layers to uh, the Brown Mountain Lights that I definitely think warrant further scientific investigation. And um, one of my favorite bits on 
on uh, your episode about it is like somebody really needs to update that Wikipedia page because it is just way off. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. In fact, actually, I, I think I've got it open in my browser here and it looks like maybe there have been some some updates. But, you know, this is a problem I have actually now from the looks of it right now, I'm seeing a lot of new data that's been uh, added. So I'm going to have to go back and re-review it again at the time that I, maybe who knows? I haven't read this, so I don't know what, what all the new information is, but maybe somebody heard my episode and decided to go back in and <laughs> add some um, some new information because unfortunately at the time I did that episode, yeah, I mean, there was, there was a, a good several years gap uh, in terms of the most up-to-date information about uh, the mountain and, uh, and, and studies into the lights. And this is something that you find an awful lot with Wikipedia. And I'll just, this is off topic, but I mean, I'll, I'll briefly just note. Go for it. There has been a preponderance of, uh, especially on UFO related articles on Wikipedia, um, removals of relevant data points that are not uh, in favor of, or that don't cater to explicitly skeptical perspectives. And it's a fascinating phenomenon because when you, I love to go and when I find a page that's just been completely gutted like that, nothing but, you know, references to, and actually I like Brian Dunning of Skeptoid and I've corresponded with Brian a bit, uh, but he is one of the quote unquote approved skeptics. And so if it's not Brian Dunning and if it's not Philip J. Class and a few others, Joe Nickel, uh, it, they, they'll try to take all the references out of these articles. And so what has resulted is an example would be the 1976 Tehran UFO incident, um, over Iran, uh, They'll actually take out the synopsis. They'll take out key information about the case, and they'll and they'll leave only the skeptical conclusions. And when that happens, I'll go and I'll read on the talk page to see uh, what other Wikipedia editors have to say about it. I'm like, this this article makes no sense now because there's no context, there's no groundwork laid. It's just an incident occurred in 1976, and here's what skeptics think about it. Yeah. And again, dare I say, I don't think that probably Brian Dunning or others would agree with that kind of presentation of material. There needs to be a little more to flesh it out. And sure enough, the Wikipedia editors say the same thing. Many of them are like, look, you know, I'm a skeptic myself, and I don't have a dog in this fight about UFOs, but you know, you guys are being so militant in your skeptic uh, you know, attitude about this that you're removing data that is really important to kind of giving people a balanced perspective on the, the, the incident in question. If there's going to be a Wikipedia page, the purpose of Wikipedia is providing information, but you've removed so much information that the reader now ha, ha, you know, does not have a clear idea of what's actually happening. Yeah. It's just like, okay, a thing happened and here's what skeptics say about it. What actually happened? Where's the actual synopsis, right? Mm -hmm. so, so even some of the Wikipedia editors have had to go in there and say there's a sort of militant skepticism. And I don't blame, by the way, the so-called approved skeptics that I was referencing. Mm -hmm. Brian Dunning's a great guy. You know, I mean, he, he's always been very kind to me in, in our uh, interactions. Um, but, uh, but there are certain people who I think in an almost worshipful way think that they have to uphold them and them only, and only those perspectives, those ideologies that conform to what they already expect, what they already believe. And you see a lot of that on Wikipedia. And so, I mean, yeah. as useful as Wikipedia is, I've actually donated to them, you know, because I use their website like many other people, uh, most of us, in fact, Yep. but you got to really watch out for those biases. And what I'm against is not, uh, ideology. It's it's people who defend their ideology only and are unwilling to be accepting of perspectives of any kind that seem to differ from their ideology. And it's sad that Wikipedia, the great you know resource that it is, often 
uh, has become this sort of this kind of you know flame throwing ideology war really i mean where people are going on there and they're trying to you know make the articles refer you know reflect only their worldview rather than actually a balance trying to turn it into reddit <laughs> well yeah and that seems to be human nature but guys i gotta say I, however skeptical you are i mean i'm actually really skeptical with you and i may even agree with yeah. some of their points but i disagree with what they're doing to wikipedia they're destroying the nature of wikipedia and the articles and what they're supposed to represent which is knowledge yeah yeah i agreed well uh Micah, I, I want to thank you so much for, for coming on to the show uh, with me. I Before we wrap this up, though, I, I do want to ask you, like, what are, like, after years of research and being kind of personally connected to this, um, would you be willing to share your own personal thoughts and opinions on what potentially could be going on down there? Or yeah. do you need a few more years? <laughs> yeah, I will need a few more years because, I mean, any conclusions I will offer right here are provisional. This mm -hmm. is only based on observations. And you got to keep in mind, when I say observations, I'm not saying what, what I have gone and seen. I'm talking about the evidence I have observed, the eyewitness testimony, stories of those like yourself who have mm -hmm. gone and seen things that I certainly have not, uh, photographic evidence, and... Uh, and also looking at the body of historical data. Something that troubles me a little bit about Brown Mountain is that there are very few historical references prior to around 1911 or 12, maybe as early as 1910. I think the current Wikipedia article says that sightings started occurring around 1910. I have seen some references in indigenous American folklore to things like the Brown Mountain Lights. Yeah. Right. I'm so glad you brought that up because mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up before we close this out, because that's something that I wanted to talk to you about. Um, mm -hmm. Listening to your episode on it, that was the first time that I had heard of that, but it had always been lingering in the back of my mind. Like, have the indigenous people seen anything like that prior to us being here? And I, if I remember correctly, like, I mean, it's, it, it's not concrete but there potentially are references to it all the way back to like 1200 right somewhere around yes there. yeah um potentially you know, not to get off base but yeah since you mentioned that you wanted to cover that this is an important point and i can weave this into my own theories as we're wrapping up sure um i'm interested in all different kinds of phenomena right mm -hmm. and another involves the so-called relic hominoid idea or what we would call sasquatch or bigfoot in, in the united states I'm willing to say, you know, there isn't enough evidence yet to support the existence of that creature. But I mean, there's an awful lot of anecdotal data that is interesting to me. And so, I mean, I, I remain interested and hopeful. Okay. Yeah. Unlike a lot of people who conclude, well, it seems impossible. Therefore, I don't think that creature exists. And I'm happy just to leave it at that. I'm like, well, you know, okay, the, the, the historical references and certainly the modern sightings are very interesting to me. Mm -hmm. And I've seen skeptics say, but there are no, you know, sightings that extend further back into history and therefore it couldn't be a biological reality. So the first thing I do is I go look at historical records and there's a great book by Chad Arment that does just this, goes all the way back into the 19th century. And, you know, certainly you can see references to creatures remarkably similar to Sasquatch that predate the modern era. The next thing that, you know, as a researcher I want to do is I want to say, well, again, let's see if we can go back into prehistory. Let's see if there are existing indigenous American traditions that seem to account for knowledge of something similar to this. And again, you find that also. The problem with it, and this is where we come back to Brown Mountain, yes, there have been insinuations that indigenous American traditions account for knowledge of the Brown Mountain light phenomena 
-hmm. The problem is none of those appear in print um, prior to around the middle of the last century, okay? No. <laughs> and that's the issue. And so we could say the same thing about Sasquatch. Well, sure, you know, anthropologists, ethnologists by the middle of the 19th century or the late 19th century, at least, they're definitely going out there and they're speaking with members of the Clallam tribe and other indigenous American groups on the Pacific Northwest coast. And some of them have traditions about creatures like the Seatics or they were known by different names. And yes, these are similar to our modern idea of Sasquatch. But again, we don't have an actual historical reference from that actual period. What we have is we have the later collected knowledge of the indigenous Americans by Westerners who go there. Now, that still may be of significance. It's, it's still may, may be interesting, but I would dare say that with regard to the Brown Mountain Lights, to say in 1950 that indigenous Americans knew about the lights as far back as 1200 doesn't offer us a historical data point that proves that this was something that was known that far back, okay? That said, the only really reliable historical data I think that we can use for the Brown Mountain thing appears around 1911, 1912. And, and again, this is coinciding roughly with the period during which electricity uh, is brought to the region. And, and so a lot of skeptics here again have said, well, I think therefore we can say that the likelihood that this is a phenomena with a modern provenance, something that only appeared around the time electricity enters the region, you know, that railroads start appearing, that probably, uh, you know, is a giveaway. Now, again, for my own part, however, having seen good data, which I think includes photographs and video, and then eyewitness testimony, that may be anecdotal data, but it's still important in, in terms of the collection of information we're looking at. If it were only distant railroad lights and things like that, how do we account for the lights that are seen above the ridgeline, as depicted in numerous photographs and videos? I think a better explanation for what occurs at Brown Mountain is probably some kind of a luminous phenomenon. I do think it's a natural one. I'll leave open to the possibility that it has, you know, behaviors or awareness or something Sentience. like that associated. Yes, yeah. right. I'll, I'll leave open for that possibility because, I mean, that is a consistent feature that you you find in research regarding earth lights. But whether that is something that is, you know, controlled and intentional or it's just something that happens as a result of the way that these lights operate, you know, their electrical properties, I don't know. We've already covered some of that. Yeah. But what I do think we can conclude is that there is a natural luminous electrical phenomena similar to ball lightning, which some researchers have termed earthquake lights that is occurring at Brown Mountain. And so as far as my further research, the questions I have are one, what causes it? Uh, and two, what causes Brown Mountain or the Limville Gorge to be one of the areas around the world that is a so-called hotspot? What is unique about, you know, the geology of that region, the makeup of the region that is conducive to Brown Mountain being a sort of natural laboratory, a natural generator of this phenomena? So those are the two really important questions, I think. How does it work? What causes it? And why specifically the Brown Mountain area. What about that area makes it so special? So those are the uh, the areas I'm working on right now. But I mean, my conclusions are that probably based on the body of geological data, that this is, this is probably what we're dealing with is a geological phenomena that produces something like ball lightning. And that still is a great mystery. And I think if we can figure that out, it may answer a lot of questions we have about various kinds of UAP and other things. It will probably solve uh, a lot of missing pieces, to be honest. Um... Micah, if I can help you with your research in any way, I'm more than happy to, and I'm more than happy to, to share any data that I pick up in the upcoming years, because now that I'm here in North Carolina, buddy, I am going to be up there at least two times a year looking for these things after that Certainly. last one. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, th thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, before we wrap up here, um, got a couple of, of 
questions for you. Um, mm-hmm. First and foremost, I have been in this state only for five years now. I have no plans on leaving because this place is as weird as it gets, and I love every bit of it. So um, specifically to the strangeness in the skies, are there any other locations in North Carolina that are worth noting uh, that maybe I should plan some treks to? Well, yeah, possibly, uh, because you got to keep in mind some of the uh, aerial phenomena that uh, the Navy has observed since 2004, and specifically two instances of it filmed in 2015. Uh, These are now the famous Navy videos that were acknowledged by the Pentagon in April of 2020, uh, which they class as unidentified aerial phenomena. Um, more commonly, historically known as UFOs, th- those videos, to the, again, one of them we know is associated with the so-called USS Nimitz incident from 2004, but the other two were filmed off the eastern coast in 2015. And so you got to keep in mind that there are a lot of controlled uh, military uh, ranges, airspaces off the coast of North Carolina and Virginia and extending on down the east coast. And uh, from time to time, uh, there are things that appear online that people call UFOs, which are in fact probably any number of different kinds of, you know, countermeasures or, or, or chaff or just, you know, aerial exercises being carried out by military aircraft there off the the, uh, East coast. But what is interesting is that indeed, if, uh, the, uh, recently established AOIMSG, what is it? The airborne object identification and management and synchronization group. I think that's what it means. Yeah. yeah, right. (laughs) With the establishment of this new, uh, uh, agency or group, as they term it, uh, by the Pentagon, and then thereafter with the passing of the National Defense Authorization Act for fiscal year 2022, which uh, President Biden just signed into law, we also saw uh, the so-called Gillibrand-Rubio Amendment passed into law with that. And so there's going to have to be the establishment of another UAP investigative group in government. But the current effort with the Pentagon that has already been actually established, the AOIMSG, it's looking specifically at these controlled military airspaces. And why that's significant and what that has to do with North Carolina is that, indeed, if there are videos being made in that kind of airspace off the East Coast, and enough so that the Pentagon now wants to start looking specifically at that controlled, you know, special use airspace, I would say, yeah, go to the coast, take some good binoculars, maybe a good telescope, and if you've got night vision, that too, and hang out there and, and, you know, maybe on the Outer Banks, you know, watch the skies because, obviously, our military personnel have had encounters with these things. Uh, in those kinds of areas. I would say, in fact, that's something I'd love to do in the future is spend some time down on the coast just observing the skies. You never know what you might see. So that's uh, one place as far as uh, things in the skies. I can't really think of any others uh, that are hot spots per se. But again, even if those are the only two, it makes North Carolina an extraordinary place to visit, huh? Yeah, at least for that <laughs> phenomenon alone, like uh, having uh, not only the Brown Mountain Lights, but um uh, all the things that are happening out on the coast itself. Like this state is chock full of wonderful weird and I am not going to be leaving for a very long time. <laughs> yeah. I, I yeah, somehow to- found myself here. I just ended up in North Carolina and then I started looking into all of the weird and strange and man, I'm home. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's definitely a good destination for all of that, you know? And, uh, and, you know, I happen to have been born here, so I guess I'm a little partial to it, but I can I can tell uh, that um, I'll probably always have a base of operations here no matter where else I travel to in the world because I, I just love North Carolina. If you don't come here for the weirdness, come here for the beauty. Come here for the beer. Again, there's some incredible beer, some great craft breweries. Um, 
lots to love about it. <laughs> All right, brother. Uh, before we let you go, is there, uh, do you have anything coming down the pipeline that, uh, that you'd like to share with my audience? I mean, I'm, you're one of the busiest men that I know. So anything you can share, I should say. Oh yeah, sure. I mean, of course, uh, you know, I am, uh, I've got some writing projects in the works and I have uh, made it a new year's resolution to try and complete at least one of those this year, but more if possible. Um, I've always got a lot of podcasts going out. And so you can find all those podcasts at micahanks.com. In fact, everything I do, you can find uh, there at micahanks.com. And then there's also the debrief, which uh, is a news site that was uh, launched by myself and my co-founders, Tim McMillan and MJ Benias. And of course, we've got a whole cadre of other people, Chris Plain, Chrissy Newton, uh, Christina mm -hmm. Gomez, who has really kind of risen to being a uh, you know, a, a, one of the, the, the bright and uh, shining lights as we move forward into the future of UAP studies. And so, you know, Christina also is an integral part of what we do. But uh, over at thedebrief.org, we offer reporting on everything from science and propulsion and, and uh, you know, uh, technology, government defense, everything, to also UAP. And that being a, such a soft spot for me, you'll notice I cover that topic pretty frequently over there. So uh, that's definitely something I'll be involved with in the uh, near future. But I'm sure 2022 will be as busy as any year I've had. And I, I look forward to <laughs> bringing a whole lot more to the table if I can. And of course, getting back down to Brown Mountain as soon as I possibly can. I was there the day after Christmas. Hope to get back down again soon. Uh, personally, I'm thinking second week of May, I, I intend on being there, but okay. uh, once I get it locked down, I'll, I'll definitely let you know. Yeah. Yeah. Keep in touch. Maybe I'll uh, see you there. Uh, well, I certainly hope so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll certainly join you again. All right, my friend. Thank you so much. fascinating guy. Once once again, that was Micah Hanks of the Micah Hanks program. I'll be sure to have those links in the show notes for you. And there we go, my friends. Our experiences with the Brown Mountain Lights were, well, phenomenal. Better believe we're going to be going back. We hope you enjoyed joining us for this journey, and thank you for listening. I'd like to thank Micah very much again for taking out, uh, time out of his incredibly busy schedule to come and join us for this, the season one finale of XV Planus. And about that, I want to take a moment to explain to you all what that means. Yes, this is the end of season one, but that does not mean there won't be more content coming down the pipeline. Moving forward on this show, the seasons will be the results of our field investigations and first-hand accounts of high strangeness. For these episodes, you can expect deep dives into the history and lore of the locations we go to, as well as thorough discussions about the experiences themselves that we have. You can expect to hear a lot from Walker, Alejandro, Megan, Ralph, and others you've met on this show as acting co-hosts for those conversations. You'll also notice a shift in tone in the coming months. While we will continue to essentially follow the same mission, uh, we're going to... We're going to take things a little bit more professionally moving on. Uh, but fear not, we're still going to have fun with it. I'll never be stuffy here, I can guarantee that. And I can never promise you that this show will not be explicit, because to pay the bills, I am a chef, so I have a mouth worse than a sailor. But I've done pretty good this episode, right? Right. So Season 2 will likely premiere in mid-March, beginning with our thorough investigation, both historical and physical, of the infamous Sally House that we've been hinting at for so long. 
We will need that time off to wrap up some loose ends in the narrative and hopefully find more innovative ways to share more of the audio and video we captured while we were there. But wait, there's more. What's going to be filling the airwaves in the meantime will be an interview series with several people who have also become parts of the extended EVP family, including Jill Weaver, who was with us for the entirety of the Sally House experience, and the aforementioned Trish Moe, who also joined for an evening. I thought it important to introduce these two, especially since you will hear from them quite a lot in future episodes. And I can promise that you will not want to miss out on those interviews. You might need to grab a bowl to catch your brain because it might melt a little. I have a few other people lined up as well, but I'll refrain from naming them for the time being. I don't really want to spoil the surprise. And Twin Geeks will also continue, and you can expect a new episode of that coming up here in the next two weeks, I think, at most. Hopefully next. And speaking of which, uh, Beth and I have another deep dive up our sleeves that we'll be sharing with you later this year, but I ain't saying what it is just yet. Ha ha ha. I'll also be doing semi-regular film commentaries with Deviant Legion and group over in, at Incredibly Strange Films. If you follow the show on Facebook, I'll be announcing those there as well. And speaking of filmmakers, we hope to have uh, Tony Burgess join us here again in the near future to discuss automatic writing, hell mouths, and general weirdness. And one last thing before we close. The Patreon will be firing up in May, and when that happens, a portion of our back catalog will be moved into the archives. So if you're a super fan, I would go ahead and download them now, because I will be taking some of the, the earlier ones off. So that, my friends, that's going to wrap it up. I want to thank Micah once again for joining us this evening, as well as Tony Burgess, Dr. Amy Robbins, Lux Estrada, Janelle Deetham, Stephanie McGann Jansen, Carl Kiefer, Stevie D. Norman, Rachel Elena, and all the other guests who came to hang out in the Black Lodge with me this year, especially those whose conversations you have not heard yet, but you will very, very soon. Much love and mad respect to, and, and many, many thanks to the group that has become the XV Planets Investigative Family. Jill, Walker, Alejandro, Megan, Ralph, Beth, Trish, Shane, Rachel, Sonny, Alan, all of you crazy people that are coming with me to Waverly in March. You all have enriched my life and made the journey so far much, much more than I ever could have asked for. A huge thanks to Forrest Burgess and Scott Philbrook from Astonishing Legends for all of their help in recent months, as well as Rich Haddam for partially causing me to be here. Let me put it this way. If you don't like the show, blame Rich for putting the Mothman in my head when I was younger. This podcast is produced in Durham, North Carolina, and was recorded, edited, and scored by yours truly. Original music from this series can be found under my musical moniker, Folds and Floods. Be sure to check us out on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Twitch, YouTube, and everywhere else as XV Planis. And you can follow my personal accounts and music at Folds and Floods. You can click on the link tree in the show notes for quick access to all of that. Our case files will continue with Season 2, premiering in March. In the meantime, don't miss any of the other great content coming out here at XV Planis. Once again, I'm your host, Flood. Thank you for being a part of the journey so far. Keep your heart soft, your head strong, and keep it weird and wonderful. Take care of yourselves, take care of each other, and I'll see you in the between. <laughs> <laughs>